Hello there, everyone. This is Daniel Fagella with Tech Emergence, where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and researchers in the domain of emerging technology, and particularly where psychology and technology overlap. Luckily, we've on a, been on a rather big spree here with brain-computer interface, um, and luckily today, I'm on the line with uh, the founder of GTech, which is a uh, BCI uh, supply company. They work with a lot of the uh, premier research projects in this domain of brain machine interface, as well as a renowned researcher, Dr. Christoph Gruga. Christoph, how are you today? Hello, nice to hear you. Yes, indeed. Good to have you on, all the way from uh, from Austria. I think I had initially thought it was Australia, and I thought I was going to be waking up at one o'clock in the morning for this interview, and then you kindly reminded me I didn't have to do that, which was very good. So, uh, uh, don't have kangaroos here. Yeah, yeah, no, not so many in Austria. It's a little bit different uh, where you guys are. So uh, a lot better skiing as well. But anywho, hey, I, I, uh, I know in, in terms of the projects that you're working on, I've, I've been lucky enough to talk to a number of BCI researchers uh, over here in the Yankee States. Um, and some of the projects that you're working on right now are, are actually quite different than some of the problems that even the, the, the folks at world-renowned BrainGate are cracking away at. Um, and I want to talk first about the, the Verre uh, project, which has to do um, with robotic and digital embodiment via BCI. Um, I wanted you to give a, give a quick sort of recap of what's involved in that project and who's working on it now, because I think this is some, some serious future-changing uh, stuff here, Christoph. So I'll let you kind of take the floor. Yeah, the Verre project is a large European Union project. It's an integrated project with about 15 partners from different nations. And the goal is to build brain-computer interfaces that allow to control virtual and robotic avatars. So we have the leader, Mel Slater, from University of Barcelona, which is one of the uh, inventors of caves and virtual realities mm -hmm. systems. He built the first cave, for example, in London, in England, many years ago. And together with him, we do very nice research for improving the brain-computer interfaces. Um, we have also robotics guys inside the project from University of Technology Munich and also from France and from Japan who work with humanoid robotic systems. And we have a couple of virtual reality people like from Perco in Pisa in Italy and from University of Barcelona who design nice avatars virtual reality that we can control. Yeah, um, and and I always find it motivating when, when there's so much collaboration around these emerging technology projects and just a well-intended kind of unity between nations and universities and languages. Um, and uh, if, if you're the folks who are tuned in, if you go to vereproject.eu, you can get a gist of all of the various researchers and domains of expertise and nations that are involved in this particular project. Um, Christoph, who is this focused on benefiting initially? I know part of the project is um, being able to have maybe a, a headset or some kind of immersive environment, uh, virtual reality um, goggles, and, and to be able to, with thought, control even potentially a, a physical humanoid robot to eventually maybe walk somewhere, pick up a can of Coke. Um, speak to a little bit of, of what some of the first benchmarks we're looking to reach with this project really are. So first we want to control virtual avatars to improve the BCI systems and it's also easier with virtual avatars to test the, the speed and the accuracy that you can achieve. Yeah. And you can also make very nice experiments if your avatar is, for example, changing gender 
how this is affecting the control and your personality. Mm. Uh, or you can also study violence. So if the, the avatar is hitting you and all this stuff, <laughs> there are very nice experiments going on. Um, but for the robotic avatars, we want to send them, for example, to, to other places to do certain tasks for us. And normally you are sitting in front of a computer screen and on the computer screen you can see what the avatar is seeing. So the avatar has stereo vision, uh, which is transmitted to your screen so that you can control it. You can also have head-mounted displays so that you get everything stereoscopically. And then you can make certain decisions and they are, they are sent to the avatar or the robotic system and it's doing it for you. And here we have two control modes. So one is the goal-oriented mode where you tell robotic system uh, go, for example, to a certain position, and then the robotic system does it automatically because it has vision, it has shape recognition, so it knows when there's a table or a chair or how big the room is, and therefore the robotic system can, can move itself to a certain position. And with the PCI system, you're just making the decision where the, the robot should go for you. And then can also have a continuous control mode where you can steer, for example, the robotic system forward, left, right. So you are making real-time decisions what the robot should do for you. Yeah, uh, and and in in terms of um, how how this is being applied right now, I know that there's a lot of um, non-invasive BMI work that you're working on here in terms of headsets and kind of the classic EEG uh, work. But then also uh, invasive work, where we're actually getting those those sensors uh, into the gray matter and into the cortex, um, and you know having to go beneath the skull there to, to really uh, calibrate to a higher level of resolution in terms of the signals we're, we're gleaning from the brain. Um, what are those experiments like now in terms of the Veray project? Um, the more invasive uh, applications here. So for invasive brain computer interfaces, you need of course a neurosurgeon who yeah. implants the PCI system directly onto the cortex. And the benefit is that you get a much better spatial resolution. This Certainly. means we can use smaller cortical areas for producing control signals. Mm-hmm. And recently we did an experiment in Japan to, together with Dr. Kamada at Ashikawa University, where we had an epileptic patient implanted with the PCI technology and he was doing certain finger movements and arm movements and this was translated to the humanoid avatar and you could see the same finger movements uh, which were controlled in real time by the patient yeah. and that's very impressive because the, the speed is so fast so the control signals that we are generating are actually faster than what the robotic system can do because the, the robot is just too slow yeah, yeah, to yeah, keep yeah. up with the speed of the uh, sorts that we are generating. Huh, so, in, in terms of um, so, in, in terms of application, hypothetically, uh, someone who's who's locked in might have a system like this, and I imagine we're we're a, sh- a short ways off here before we have a humanoid robot that can get up and and walk and do a backflip on a trampoline and. Uh, you know, fry eggs, but um, if it's if it's just a uh, you know, it could be a, a pair of, of arms if we're if we're uh, connected to the part of the motor motor cortex that you know a lot of the brain gate folks are working with, which controls kind of wrist and arm movement, um, and and we could set those arms next to a keyboard. Hypothetically, we might be able to have someone 
uh, even with a locked-in syndrome, be able to control arms as if they were their own, hooked up to sort of the same places that might control their physical arms if they could control them, and move a mouse, uh, you know, type some paragraphs, send some emails, um, almost as though they were using their own arms? Is this maybe one of the first checkpoints we could work towards here? Of course, and that's also a very nice uh, feature of the very project. So we have two learning systems. First, the brain-computer interface is learning what uh, each what the person is doing and how we translate it. And we have also the, the robotic system, which is learning certain tasks. So you can train, for example, the robotic system to pick up objects or to, to play, for example, this music instrument. And after the robotic system has learned it, you are just giving the high-level uh, command or the robotic system to do it for you. Uh, this is like a human being, so if you train yourself on a certain task, you, you have to learn it. So you need your cortex and a lot of neurons to do the task, and yeah. after some time it's pre-programmed, you're just making the high-level decision to do it. So if you grasp, for example, a glass of water, you are not uh, commanding your hand down, down, forward, you just make the high-level decision to grasp the glass of water and your, yeah. your body is doing it for you because it's pre-programmed. And this is what we copy into the robotic systems and capture with the PCI system. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that uh, in addition to, you know, for lack of better terms, plugging into the existing physical system, um, we also in many respects have to sort of mis uh, mirror the physical system in terms of that same kind of learning that a physical body would have to go through, that, that you're, you're, uh, you know, that somebody might have to get used to to, to juggle a soccer ball. Um, we have to get that same smoothness, so to speak, from, from the signals from the brain through the physical actual actions of the robot itself, which I think is just fascinating. Um, in terms of where this might uh, have some interesting applications, I know you were talking about uh, virtual avatars. So this might be, and, and I'm familiar that uh, with your company working on a number of research projects, including people moving around and controlling characters in World of Warcraft with, with just their minds, which is pretty fascinating. Um, in terms of the, the virtual avatars, I know you had spoken very briefly to, you know, experimenting with violence and gender and all different kinds of virtual embodiment. Um, where is the research going there, and what are you really aiming to to glean from that? What's being worked on in, in virtual embodiment, and what are we working towards? And the big advantage of virtual embodiment is that you can study embodiment. So you, you can learn how the avatar has to behave, that you really feel embodied. Um, so Mel Slater developed, for example, a concept that's called breaking presence. This means he's starting with a nice virtual embodiment, environment and suddenly he's changing something and he's monitoring if you lose the embodiment ah. and the theory is if you don't lose your embodiment and you feel embodied and the virtual reality works for you um, so that's a nice concept for testing it but the basic goal is of course that you feel as much embodied inside the avatar because then it's easier for you to learn certain tasks or to train yourself on specific functions yeah and, and, and it sounds like you can, you can train embodiment, um, you can train the correlation of, of certain thoughts uh, or mental action to, to particular results from whatever machine or whatever avatar you're controlling. You can toggle around with presence a lot easier, it sounds like, when, when you don't have to worry about a clunky robot in the other room that could be falling over or you know kicking something or 
breaking and then it'd be very expensive to fix. Um, you can sort of uh, toggle with the experience of embodiment without needing maybe as much equipment and, and management, if I'm, if I'm gleaning it correctly. Exactly, it's much cheaper and also it gives you a lot of different applications. So if you think about uh, stroke rehabilitation, for example, that's a very nice application area for brain-computer interfaces. So basically the stroke patient uh, has a specific thought, like moving his left hand. Yeah. Then you can just uh, put himself into a virtual avatar and then the stroke patient sees the left hand moving of the avatar. So you're activating the mirror neurons because he's yeah, same, yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. the same movement of the avatar that he's intending to do. You can play with brain plasticity, and this uh, gives you a better outcome of the stroke rehab, for example. Uh-huh. So do we do we have current research and evidence of that now? I mean, I'm familiar with, with some of the mirror uh, neuron work that's even been done with just mirrors, um, interestingly enough. Uh, but a mirror neuron work with a BCI system that would act as, that would, that would allow the arm to act as if it were not paralyzed and, and using that to train those neural pathways and get them back up to snuff, so to speak, to, to actually move the arm. Is that being put in place now with, with stroke uh, victims? Oh, yeah, sure. We, we have, for example, a system that's called Rehabilitation BCI. Mm-hmm. Um, and we asked the person to imagine left-hand movement, right-hand movement, whatever is affected uh, due to the stroke. Yeah. Then at the same time, we have the limbs moving off the avatar to activate the mirror neuron system. And we also do a functional electrical stimulation. This means the hand is electrically stimulated so that you also get the same type of movement. And this all together has a very positive effect on the rehabilitation of the patient. And of course, the real movement, the virtual movement, that's all feeding back via the visual system to the, to the cortex again. And is affecting brain plasticity and for this reason uh, people learn faster to recover. Huh. Yeah, th- th- that's, uh, that's an, again, another relatively interesting application that maybe would work um, even better if they're wearing a, a virtual reality, uh, you know, head mount display, which I imagine they would be, in order to sort of see and experience that to, to re-engage those neurons. That, that's maybe an example where that's that's even better than having a, a physical robot per se. Um, what are what are some other applications there specifically of virtual? You know, obviously another benefit I, I suppose is controlling non-humanoid um, entities and, and feeling kind of an embodiment with. You know, I know you and I had spoken off mic about being able to control uh, m- machines or, or entities that that aren't necessarily a person with two arms and two legs, um, but still being able to have that level of functional control and embodiment in something like that, which which for me really uh, leads us down a very interesting path of what we could potentially control, e- even so far beyond uh, what our human form is. But speak a little bit to that maybe. Where, where are we inching off to? What else can, can people control potentially? So within the very project, uh, there's also the University of Munich from Germany and this Angelika Pear, and they developed a very nice uh, uh, robotic system which can do specific tasks and here a possible application is that you send your avatar to a remote place where you maybe don't want to go yourself because it's dangerous for example and then the robotic system can do tasks for you and they showed for example very nice experiments where the robotic system could open doors for you so they could turn the key they could open the door itself and 
then the robotic system can, can go in and do, do another task inside. And if you think, for example, about Fukushima, yeah, uh, such robotic systems that are acting as your avatar because it's too dangerous for you are very nice. Or you could also think, for example, about uh, remote um, tourism for doing journalistic work. Huh, and dangerous huh. places with robotic systems. So that, that would also be very nice if you can send your avatar to a critical region. You can observe, you can get in contact with local people, but you don't have to go yourself to this place. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to get in an airplane, you don't have to risk, uh, never mind travel costs, but, you know, various physical dangers if you're covering a war zone of some kind or something like that. So that's fascinating as well. And then more funny, of course, it gets if, if uh, you know, different avatars are meeting at remote places. And, and this also studied within the very project, how, how this is changing your embodiment and so on. Yeah, it, it, I think the concept of embodiment, and particularly embodiment outside of a humanoid form, sort of opens up a, a lot of Pandora's box action um, in some potentially... Uh, very, very interesting um, ways. And, and to that topic, and simply because I, I realize we're sort of coming to, towards the end of the interview time here, um, Christoph, I know you've been involved in this world for 15 years or so, uh, arguably, you know, a, a lot longer than most in, in many respects. Um, in terms of where you see BCI being able to make some of its first uh, stretches into the into the mainstream where, where somebody might know what's going on here you know and in my personal opinion you know I, I might be a little bit of a uh, of a, a nerd on this particular topic but you know I happen to think that a lot of the BCI work is, is positively fascinating and the, the the concept of extending human potential to the degree that we may be doing so I think maybe uh, one of the grandest innovations uh, in, in our, our history as a species um, but it's but it's not necessarily something somebody off the street would know. You know, I mean, people know how to do the YMCA dance, but they don't necessarily know what's happening um, at BrainGate or or what might be coming down the pipeline in terms of um, this embodiment concept and virtual reality. Where do you see BCI? Whether it's treating folks with strokes, whether it's uh, dealing with other conditions or concerns, or or maybe the journalistic application. Where do you see BCI really starting to? kick off, you know, to the point where people understand that BCI has realistic implications and applications that start to become a little bit of a part of daily life or working life in some way. Where, where do you see where do you see that eventually maybe crossing over? Important is that the BCI system gives you some new functions. So if you just want to replace a computer keyboard, you will be slower. But there are many applications where you get benefits. For example, for coma patients, uh, BCI system allow you to do some assessment, and it allows also coma patients to have some communication. This is very valuable information for doctors and families, so that you know if the coma patient is still understanding you. Um, for stroke patients, if you have a better recovery and your motor functions are improving, that's of course uh, very important so that you can do home re rehabilitation after you have the stroke. And stroke patients are very often not very old, so they do everything just to recover, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, then you can use it for locked-in patients and ALS patients, which cannot move and communicate, so they can form words and letters, sentences have communication which is improving the quality of life tremendously so they can also have smart home controls to control tv sets yeah, yeah. 
and curtains and so on. So that's all very useful. And this is already happening. And many people are already getting this technology nowadays. And in future, if you can also do implants, yep. this would be a big benefit because then you don't have to attach every time the PCI system. So you, you could just have your implant permanently there and it's just working. And my favorite scenario is always to have an implanted remote control because then you don't have to search for it. It's just <laughs> yeah. there and you can use it. Um, and of course the avatar control, you know, it gives you so many possibilities if you don't have to visit all the places yourself. You're just guiding your avatar to a certain position. And he's doing something for you that, that's very promising. But this is of course fiery. Yes, yeah, that, that that complete immersion in, in control is, is a little little is a little ways off. Um, as you'd mentioned, you know, some of these technologies are in place today. People are gleaning benefits uh, from BMI technologies that that could not be yielded via anything else in the past. And obviously, we've made leaps and bounds in just the last five years. Never mind the last fifteen since you've been involved in this field. Um, do you think that the first sort of big jumps, you know, in other words, the 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 day when when your random person on the side of the street has an understanding of what BCI or BMI even means, um, do you do you think that it hitting the mainstream is really going to come from the working on fixing an ameliorative sort of application, so the strokes? The ALS, those kind of applications, are those going to be some of the, uh, the 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 strongest initial pushes where this really makes a dent in the world? Or do you think that um, kind of enhancing and and augmenting um, normal human function, which I know some startup companies and other folks are working on as well, do you think that might be where BMI sort of gets its jump off point and, and society becomes familiar with it? Um, which, which do you think might sort of make the biggest splash initially to the point where people actually know what's happening here, your average person off the street? Yeah, for the average person off the street, it's of course very important that the BCI system is cheap and, and working and it has to be faster or better compared to other input devices that you might have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's unfair, for example, to compare a computer keyboard, which was developed for decades uh, for typing characters into the computer uh, with a BCI system, because the BCI system was just not designed for healthy people to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the, embodied, the embodiment work, for example, shows that you can really be embodied in, the, in another device this is only working if you are controlling it mentally, like the body is your own, so you don't feel that this is another body. Yeah. And then you are gaining something because you don't have to steer the, the robot with a keyboard or a mouse. It's just your body and it's doing what you want him to do. And then you gain something. Indeed, yeah. So we have to go sort of beyond normal function. I, I, I'm very much with you there. I think that if if... BCI is applied in sort of a general consumer play of some kind um, that serves a function that something else could do easier, like a keyboard, which is sort of the example you've been using here. It would be sort of a toy at most, it seems. It would need to um, augment and extend some human function in a meaningful enough way where other people, uh, where people would want to jump on board because they, they couldn't have that benefit otherwise. And I think it'll be up to the scientists, the innovators, the startup folks um, to make those innovations happen. And obviously you're in the business world, so you're one of the movers and shakers there. Um, Christoph, I, I know we're right on time. I very much appreciate 
you taking uh, the time here away from business to be able to share your thoughts on tech emergence. If people want to learn more about your research projects and what's happening in the BMI world over in Europe, um, where might they go to learn more? Yeah, the European Commission has, of course, a very huge website where you can see all the different brain computer interface projects. About the very project, we have the website of veryproject.eu. Yep. Where, where you can find videos, publications about embodiment and avatar control. So that's a very nice source, for example. Indeed. And you had mentioned that first website, that listing of all the BCI uh, projects. Where, where might that be? This just from the European Union. So if you uh, search for grants and BCI grants and European Union, you will find it. Got it. BCI grants, Euro European Union. Understood. Um, and then uh, a couple of your your other websites. I know just for people that want to be tuned into what's happening research-wise, um, intendix.com, uh, one of your sites with respect to um, BCI for for painting, for avatar control, for typing. Um, there's a lot of sort of different applications at intendix.com for folks that want to learn from there as well and dig into what Christoph has. And obviously, we'll have all the links when we get the article up um, as well. So, Dr. Christoph, thank you again so much for, for taking the time and sharing your wisdom here at Tech Emergence. Pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.